Welcome to Market Scale Retail. I'm your host, Sean Heath. Today, I have an opportunity to have a conversation with Brian Gildenberg, the Chief Knowledge Officer for the Retail Division of Kantar Consulting. Brian, how are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Give me just the the quick rundown. What is a normal day like for you? Today's Friday. For those of us who are OCD about dates and times, yes. what's what's your day look like today? You finish talking to me, and then what do you jump into? Well, um, usually uh, my day is uh, not Friday, so um, and usually that involves being um, somewhere talking to pe- talking to people, usually in person and not through the wonders of modern technology, um, about what's happening in the retail world. Most of that involves trying to help our clients who, for Cantar Consulting, are largely the major CPG companies in the world. So our job is basically to help them understand how the changes in the retail landscape are changing their business. So I spend a disproportionate amount of my time uh, working with those companies um, and trying to help them figure out everything from how to put together the best you know, Walmart team they can to maximize that business to how to figure out how to manage the changing Amazon world, all the way up to really big picture strategic questions about um, how you go to how, how you bring your products to market. Now, lest someone feel sorry for you with all of the travel that you obviously have to do, this is your passion. You really love being able to get out and present this knowledge and this information. That's really what makes your day. Oh yeah, I've been doing some form of this for about twenty-one years. So, um, so if uh, if I didn't if I didn't enjoy it, I would need significant amounts of therapy. Um, I think the uh, the the, fu- the fun part is is that it's that balance, right? There are some really big existential changes happening in the retail world. But the challenge I find, unlike a lot of consultants or thought leaders, is you got to be able, in our world, to be able to pull this to very practical solutions that people can go uh, can go execute against. And that balancing act is uh, is a tremendous amount of fun. And I, I enjoy the retail industry as a way to do that. It's, uh, it's been It's been a great Great fun. I love the phrase, everything old is new again. There are some basic fundamental concepts of retail that sort of fade in and out of awareness uh, just because people in the industry get distracted by the new shiny thing. Ooh, look at that. It's flashy. Mm -hmm. But you've got a really a grounded history in retail. What was your first what was your first experience with retail? Uh, my my first uh, well my my parents were both in retail and I never really thought about this until recently but my uh, my dad grew up uh, his his uh, family owned a gas station and my mom's family owned a flower shop so I guess it's in the blood on both sides um, my first retail experience was uh, like Elf in the movie Elf uh, I worked at Gimbel's um, in the uh, early eighties selling men's suits when I was in high school so uh, if you ever wonder. If you ever wonder why Gimbel's went bankrupt, I'm pretty sure that was a large part of the reason why. So uh, my sartorial flair is not what I'm known for. Yeah, but that means that you're someone who has an impact. So, see, there's the positive way to spin <laughs> yeah. that. That, that, that's, that. That's very true. So, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Let's talk about that. So when you are sitting there and you're planning what you're going to say and you've looked over the game plan and you know what the message needs to be, you know what the challenges are that you have to face, you have to deal with one piece of information above all else, and that's what are the trends? What are the things that are happening in the industry that we need to be aware of and we need to address? What are some of those trends that you see that have sort of caught your attention recently? Uh, we kind of, it's a good question. We kind of look at that on a couple of layers. Um, the first are what I would call tectonic trends, right? These are things that are, that tend to happen fairly slowly, but are important um, and that need to be observed. And those are, and those are the classic polarization things. Um, 
you know, we have a, we have a, at Cantar, our parent company, we have a, um, a program we run every year called Fragment Nation, which is all about the, uh, the fragmenting of the U.S. in a variety of ways. The ones for retail that are most significant are income polarization, which has gathered more than its share of airtime. Uh, but age and ethnic polarization are also huge ones as well. Um, people consistently talk about millennials, but over 100% of the population growth of the U.S. between now and 2025 is going to come from people over the age of 65. So, so as you look at that barbelling of age, that barbelling of ethnicity, over 50 America is largely Caucasian, under 30 America is not. Um, and then income, which is obvious. Those, those things all play a huge role. Uh, tech sophistication, uh, urbanization, which is an underrated but important trend in how people buy things. The types of stores you can put in densely populated neighborhoods are very different. So you got those tectonic shifts. Under that, you've got, I think, um, some reasonably close-in dynamics that are all being brought about by the changes to the retail landscape being foisted upon retailers by new competitors, notably Amazon in the U.S., um, which is as big a competitive disruptor as anything since Walmart in the sort of what we call late 70s to late 80s. Walmart, and people forget this now because they're part of the landscape, but Walmart fundamentally changed retail around the world um, and turned it from a turned it into a game in which logistics and uh, supply chain were much more important. Um, so, um, so, and today Amazon's having a similar transitional effect. Um, and then there's a number of other things that we see happening as all of the retailers seek to make their offer more omnichannel, to use the buzzword, um, and try to try to figure out how to cross the divide between the physical ecosystem that they have assets invested in and the digital world. Now, you mentioned the phrase buzzword. There's a phrase that you deal with on a daily basis that's not very buzzy, but it's really impactful. And that's the phrase uncomfortable places. Yes. That's driving growth in the industry. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, and that's the idea. And this is now flipping the switch to our CPG clients um, and looking at how where their issues are. Most of the big consumer packaged goods companies in the world, the biggest brands that buy most of the world's advertising and sell most of the world's basic needs are really struggling to grow. And a lot of that is they're growing much slower than the global economy. Our thought on that is that that growth that is coming from the economy that they're not capitalizing is coming from what we call uncomfortable places. And those places are uncomfortable for structural reasons that our clients are working through and a lot of the work that we do at Cantar Consulting and helping clients sort of switch on growth is figuring out what about those uncomfortable places can they change? So how do they see growth coming from unusual places? How do they reach growth that historically used to be difficult to find? How do they optimize their business so they can pay for it? And what are the skills that they need to get after it? So those uncomfortable, well, a lot of what we try to do is to make those uncomfortable places comfortable. Well, one of the things that you're able to do when you mention that companies find themselves in uncomfortable positions or maybe unfamiliar positions. It's just a matter of looking, not necessarily changing the environment that they're in, but finding ways to survive within that environment. So let's use the example of, say, uh, a broken sidewalk. Normally, you would not think of a tree growing in the middle of a sidewalk, but there was that small crack the light and the water combined to provide food to a seed that was beneath that, maybe lying dormant when the sidewalk was laid out and boom, 20 years later, hey, there's a tree. I look at it as the opportunistic approach. For example, it seems really smart and common sense to sell umbrellas when it's raining, but it takes an agile mind to look at 
Niagara Falls and think, oh, we could sell umbrellas to people who are walking on those observation decks. <laughs> that's what you focus on, helping companies figure out the best way to succeed. Yes, um, that's although we uh, we have not as of yet dominated the Niagara Falls umbrella industry, but thank you for the idea. Um, but um, yes, I think in general, the way we tend to look at that is that um, when we're trying to help clients see opportunity, what we often refer to that as the wide angle lens, because the wide angle lens does two things, right? One, if you're selling umbrellas to people when it's raining, that wide angle lens allows you to do what you just did, which is to say, hey, there's water falling in other places for other reasons. Could umbrellas be useful there? The other thing the wide angle lens does is it helps you right size the opportunity that's right in front of you. So for most of the people that work at big companies, their job isn't big. Their job is a very small part of that big company. So making it up, if I'm like the Tide assistant brand manager, right? Lavender scented Tide may look like the biggest idea in the world to me if I am responsible for scented Tide, working for the Tide brand manager, working for the detergent brand director, et cetera, right? With the wide angle ones, you pull back and you go, you know what? That may not be the biggest idea in the world. How do we reframe the investment of resources so that you're looking at the genuine world in a way in which you can deploy resources the right way? That allows you not only to see your Niagara Falls opportunity, but to understand that from a scale point of view, it might be a bigger opportunity than a different colored umbrella in New York City. That's the kind of work that we try to do with clients is to help them see and assess the right size for opportunities, even though they may be a bit further afield. When you pull back, you can see sometimes that those opportunities are actually bigger than you thought. So as you focus on helping make uncomfortable places more comfortable, which I would imagine there's so much math and analysis that goes into that, it would make my head hurt. How do you break that down into simple, digestible pieces for your clients without giving away the secret sauce, of course? Oh, well, um, right. you can do that in a couple of ways because um, I think it's a combination, right? There's, there's the idea around what the narrative is, right? So as an example, one of the uncomfortable places I like to talk about is this made-up country called Primerica. And Primerica is basically the 100 million people that are Amazon Prime members. Those 100 million people, if you add it, if they all lived in their own country, uh, which would be a very strange place and have lots of cardboard, but if they all lived in their own country, they would, have, they would control more purchasing power than any other country in the world, more than non-Prime America, more than China. So Primerica today is the largest consumer economy in the world. So from that insight, then you start to say, okay, okay, company X, how much do you know about American shoppers? How much do you know about Chinese shoppers? How much do you know about Prime shoppers? Well, you've got to learn more about how the Prime member is interacting with each an individual category decision that they're making, each an individual brand decision that they're making. This is a huge segment of people. And now all of a sudden, when you start to think about it that way, you can approach both the Amazon ecosystem differently, but the whole retail ecosystem differently. The retailers that are surviving best today are the ones that make the most sense as physical retail alternatives to the Amazon Prime ecosystem. And that's where we start to help our clients on the CPG side figure out where they want to invest their resources. And when we work with retailers, which we also do, help them figure out what, what their proposition should look like to compete in this new country called Primerica. So, and then the, the secret sauce is being able to tie that to rigorous analytics that allow you to explore at a granular level with provable facts what, that, what, the size and, uh, what the size and likelihood of winning in that opportunity is. I would imagine that there is a sense of fear, or maybe not fear, maybe that's the wrong word, maybe 
overcautious attitude when when these companies are faced with this uncomfortable growth do you find yourself having to to give you know a metaphorical pep talk to these companies to to help them have confidence that what they're doing is the right thing to do yes i mean you know I, isaac newton about 400 years ago uh codified a couple of pretty important principles one of which is that inertia is an incredibly powerful force um, a body at rest tends to stay at rest the trick that we see today when we look at our clients, and this is part of how I try to get them to think about retail shopping and marketing, the, you know, I mean, you're in the retail space, right? So everybody knows some version of the four P's, product, price, promotion, place, you know, the, the core pillars of how you think about retail marketing, right? The great thing with those four words, they're all nouns. They're all things that you get to and then you stop. The new four P's are what we call the five S's, which are search, scroll, subscribe, speak, share, not only do they start with S, which is really important for somebody like me that, that likes to think like that, but they're verbs. And getting, staying moving is such an important thing. And the bigger the company, the harder it is both to get moving. The great thing about inertia is once you get moving, it's hard to stop. And that's a lot of what we try to get our clients to do is to decompose the problem into things they can act on, which get over that combination of fear and the, and the feeling that even if I, one small business unit or one small person did something, it wouldn't make a hill of beans worth a difference in the grand scheme of things. That, I think, is more the problem than anything else. It's like, what can I do? These forces are too big. Well, they're not. Got to break them down into actionable steps so that, and if you can do that across enough people, then the whole organization starts to move. The great thing is, is that once organizations start to move, they do tend to keep this break. Do you think the discomfort that these companies face sometimes puts them back on their heels, maybe forces them to be a little more defensive than is beneficial? Yes. And um, I also think that it, that discomfort comes from two things. I think it is the uncertainty. Uncertainty is not a rewarded state in most big companies because um, most big companies, despite and, you know, at some senior management meeting, I'm just going, well, you know, we embrace failure. Um, that's the least true statement uttered by most large CEOs of most large companies. No, they don't. They hate it. Um, and what they hate more than failure is unpredictability. Um, and I think particularly in today's environment in which achieving your short term earnings performance numbers is such an important part of how you get paid, how you get rewarded, how you build social currency, et cetera. You know, what's the what's the thing you always want to hear about an executive? They deliver results. Good. And I, that's a wonderful thing. That overfocus on delivery of results creates a tolerance, a very low tolerance for unpredictability. Uncertainty is by definition somewhat unpredictable. So I think it's fear, but I also think it's a, a rational thought process around uncertainty that creates a tendency to ignore things that are uncertain for things that are certain, even if the thing that is certain is obviously and demonstrably less good than the thing that is uncertain would be if it worked. You mentioned earlier that there are tectonic changes that happen in the retail industry, and that very description, tectonic, indicates slow, persistent, yeah. uh, over the long haul. And an executive in a company that uh, is known for producing results, while failure is actually a result by the definition of the word, success can be halted if you don't take into account 
a time frame. Uh, the 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 metrics that are used to measure success, I think, almost always have a time component. That's not necessarily the most efficient way to approach this process. No, when I you know, and look, if uh, if tectonic changes were the things that were most rewarded, seismologists would be the richest people in the world. Um, so, but they're not. So, yes, I think that at some at some basic level, the time which you have to look for telling people about the tectonic shifts is really interesting um, and can help them frame a problem. But then what you need to do is then peel sort of peel that layer of the onion away and then get to the things that are closer to the core. What are the manifestations of that, right? So let me give you an example. Um, one of my favorite things like this, and again, it's Amazon related, but not everything in the world is, but this one is. Um, so if I am, uh, you know, the average age of first time motherhood in most of the countries in the world is going way up, right? Um, so there are far more babies born to women in their 30s today than there are to women in their 20s, and there are more babies born to women in their 40s than there are to women in their teens. Um, that's or women over 38 to, to prison women in teens. Those are all huge changes in American society, right? Now, is somebody going to get rewarded for figuring that out? No. But if I look at Amazon Prime membership and look at the number of older moms that make up a disproportionate share of that, what you realize is that a 37 year old mother of a two year old has a fundamentally different energy problem she's trying to solve than a 24 year old mother of a two year old. That 37 year old mother has her own career, has her own job, has her own life, and she's 37. She's tired. So what Amazon Prime leapt into was the enormous tectonic shift being caused by the aging of the American mother and the energy level required to take care of a toddler when you're in your 30s or 40s. Prime, so I can shop on my couch at 10 o'clock at night when I'm too tired to move, fixes an enormous problem. Now you've got a retailer that is taking over the world for a number of reasons, but one of them is that tectonic shift. To use your metaphor before, the tree root that breaks through the sidewalk, if you looked at a tree and looked at concrete, you would never think that the tree is stronger than concrete, but that tree root inevitably busts through the concrete and breaks up the sidewalk. What you want to look for are the cracks on the sidewalk. That's, that's how you help people process these tectonic shifts. For the last question, I want to take one of the five S's yeah. and I want you to search, uh, and then I'm going to bring in a reference from uh, the generation you and I are a part of, and that's the Magic 8-Ball. So yes. do me a favor and search Brian Gillenberg's Magic 8-Ball. What do you see as the thing that has almost 100% of your attention as this is how it's going to be? This is the next big change. I would say that right now the biggest, the biggest one of those is all around mobile. Um, I think it is entirely possible that when you look back on the history of shopping in, say, 2035, the biggest transition won't be from stores to computers. It'll be from computers to mobile phones. Shopping on a mobile phone is so much different than shopping on a laptop screen or shopping in a store. That And then communicating in mobile, the platforms that have become a huge share of human attention span in mobile are completely different than the platforms that one in digital, with the exception of Facebook, which kind of bridged the gap a little bit. But, you know, if I think about creating marketing that works for NBC sitcoms and creating marketing that works on Instagram, those two things are completely different. I want to thank Brian Gildenberg, the Chief Knowledge Officer in the Retail Division for Kantar Consulting, for stopping by today. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.